This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and editor of the Business of Government magazine. Now more than ever, the U.S. Navy depends on information and technology advantages to help keep the peace, fight and win and come home safe. Information management and the technology that enables it weave together to form a value chain that has as its end the conveyance of knowledge and data with the ultimate purpose of providing the warfighter the ability to make informed decisions. The U.S. Department of the Navy's Chief Information Officer plays a key role in making all this happen by ensuring a secure, efficient, mission-aligned, and accessible IT operation and infrastructure across the entire Navy enterprise. CIOs continue to be called upon to deliver more innovation, better performance, more return on investment, and an enhanced customer experience, all while protecting critical systems from a rapidly expanding set of threats that continue to morph and become more sophisticated. So how is the U.S. Navy CIO doing just that? What are the IT priorities for the U.S. Department of the Navy? How is the Navy leveraging mobility solutions to meet its evolving mission? And what is the U.S. Navy doing to enhance its IT security across the enterprise? We will explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Rob Foster, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of the Navy. Rob, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you very much, and I appreciate you having me here today. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Jimmy Norcross. Thank you so much. So, Rob, let's start off with some basics. Would you describe the mission of your office and how it supports the overall mission of the U.S. Navy and the DOD? Absolutely. So, from the Klinger-Cohen Act is where the authority of a, a CIO is derived. My office is responsible for issuing out policy across the Department of Navy, which includes the Marine Corps and the United States Navy. And that's essentially to uh, have an enterprise approach to both policies and resource decisions on a strategic basis. Uh, Can you give us a sense of the scale of operation for your office in terms of how it is organized, the size of its budget, number of FTEs, and your overall footprint across the DOD? Sure. I think it would be worth starting off with maybe the Department of the Navy and kind of going from that uh, down to my office. So Department of Navy is about 900,000 personnel. That's active duty, reserve civilians across the Navy and the Marine Corps. The budget for that uh, entire department is about $169 billion on an annual basis. 
The IT spend is approximately $8 billion for FY16. We have about 283 ships that are commissioned, 124 installations. Those uh, ships and submarines and planes are all deployed uh, throughout their cycle of deployment. So we have an operational uh, component, we have a shore-based component, and then we have a support side. And that's a, the size of the Department of the Navy, which I think is important to understand the scope and scale. My office, which does policy, is a 50-person uh, organization, and uh, we do uh, overview the uh, $7 billion IT spend as it's rolled up across the entire Department of the Navy. So, so Rob, to, to expand on that a little bit, could you talk about the roles and responsibilities you have as the, as the Department of Navy's CIO for, for our listeners? Sure. So um, from my office, and I kind of break it down from those 50 people, which aligns directly back to the responsibilities. So I have a director for cybersecurity, uh, and that cybersecurity director is focused on the policies associated with cybersecurity and ensuring that we're following those uh, department-wide we also have uh, an enterprise infrastructure organization under me, and we focus on that side about the NMCI, uh, the data center consolidation, things like that. I have an organization called IT Analysis and Internal Controls. Major focus there is uh, improved efficiencies, portfolio management, as well as uh, the financial audit that we're focused on and audit readiness. Privacy and information sharing is one of my areas that I have, and we're focused there on, on privacy, social security uh, reduction. We're talking about knowledge management, FOIA, civil liberties in that group. And then I have a strategic spectrum uh, policy shop, and one of the major areas that we have is spectrum reallocation fund in the Department of Navy, and that fund's about a $1.5 billion fund, and it's used, again, to take our uh, weapon systems and migrate them out of the spectrum uh, that has been sold. So, Rob, reg regarding your responsibilities and duties, uh, what are your, the top, say, three challenges you face, and how have you sought to address those challenges? So, I think based on some of my earlier discussion, I think one of the challenges would be working across the scope and scale of the department through policies to ensure that my objective in ever issuing a policy is to enable the mission of the Navy not to be an impedance. So one of the challenges is do we have policies that are in, in uh, potentially enabling the uh, mission or possibly disabling the mission. So I don't mind canceling policies that have been issued five to ten years ago that are not uh, up to date with the current policies that need to be in place to deploy technology. So that's, I think, a challenge, number one. Number two, I think it would be the priorities and the uh, initiatives across the entire department of the Navy as well as the Department of Defense, aligning those both from an acquisition time frame, a, a funding time frame, and then a mission time frame. So that's a, a complicated uh, discussion across multiple stakeholders. And then lastly, I think uh, making information, we have a lot of information across the department, making that information at the right level accessible, visible for uh, decision makers to make uh, timely and accurate decisions. Rob, thank you. And along with those, uh, those challenges, I'm sure you've, you've come across some um, unanticipated and unexpected uh, surprises as well. To, to, what, to what extent have, have you been surprised and, and, and what have you seen in that regard since, uh, since becoming the Department of Navy CIO? So, uh, Jimmy, I think one of the biggest ones was uh, spectrum management. So in my previous roles and in my previous life, I wasn't uh, 
as aware of the impact of a spectrum on both weapon system. I knew it existed. Mm-hmm. I knew it was there. But the international activity along spectrum, it is something that doesn't have borders. It has a significant value to the commercial space, and it has a significant engagement across, in this case, the worldwide radio conference, which is a, a UN of UNs. Uh, it's the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, which is underneath the UN. And when I went to a worldwide radio conference, I was amazed at the uh, the uh, discussions about things in the area of spectrum. So uh, both there's a CONUS aspect for the United States and then there's an international aspect for both training and operations. And that, that is a very complicated area. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's very interesting. I, I want to shift the conversation a little bit more to, to about you. Could you describe your, your career path for, for the listeners and, and what brought you to your current leadership uh, position as the Department of Navy CIO? So I uh, was a military officer uh, from 85 to 2007, Naval Supply Corps officer. I had opportunities to work uh, on, of course, some ships in the functional areas. I was an acquisition contracting officer for a while. I was a uh, special operations logistics officer out in uh, the Oconus side of the house and uh, did some contingent contracting as well. Then I went to graduate school. I had the opportunity to get a master's in information technology management at Navy Postgraduate School. Followed that up by a couple of uh, shore-based activities and payback tours and software process improvement and resource management. And I retired from Defense Logistics Agency in 2007 where we were rolling out an ERP and I had a small portion of that as a project and program manager. From there, I, uh, I had an opportunity to, to come back into the government uh, and, and serve as a civilian, which I really appreciated because it was an ability to lead, manage, and shape and contribute from uh, a government side as well, just not with the uniform. Uh, I worked at Department of Homeland Security, U.S. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement from 2007 on to 2013, where I was a program manager for a short period of time and the deputy chief information officer there working at ICE, Immigration Customs Enforcement. And from there, I moved on to the Health and Human Services Department as the deputy chief information officer uh, during the 13 through uh, 15 time frame. And then from 2015 in June, I've actually reported back to the uh, Department of the Navy, which is a, a, a real homecoming for me. Uh, I see a lot of wonderful friends that I've worked with in the past. Uh, the mission is much more complex from where I sit today, from where I sat in uh, uniform, um, because I'm seeing it at a different altitude. But it's very much interesting. Uh, I love my job, and I'm very passionate about what's going on. So, Rob, I want to get a sense of your leadership style. Uh, would you outline uh, your key leadership principles and perhaps illustrate for us how you have applied them during your career? And, and more importantly, what characteristics make an effective leader? Sure. Um, so I, I think people that come from the military, uh, they get a lot of leadership characteristics and traits from those that they've served with. And uh, it's very difficult to, in some cases, articulate it. But I've got a few few reference documents, I think, uh, that help shape uh, some of my thoughts. And, and General Powell uh, was a wonderful leader. He had a, a primer. It's the leadership primer, and you can Google it. It's about 18 uh, leadership rules. Uh, it boils it down to some very interesting aspects. And if you look at those, I think they have applicability to uh, leadership uh, going forward. 
There was 108 Skills of Natural Born Leaders, which was a book by Warren Blank. I was able to take a course with him. I found that very, very helpful. There's a book out there called Collaboration by Hansen, mm-hmm. uh, and that was a very good book, and that was also uh, co-authored, I think, when uh, Good to Great, which is another great book. And then I've uh, combined all of those things plus my leadership styles, and I have a Rob's Rules for Life and Business, and I've got about 22 of those rules that I post on my wall, and many of the folks that I've worked with in the past have those uh, uh I guess, portrayed out so that they can look at them. But I think the principles are are basic. And I mean, I'm not saying you learn this in grade school, but I, I think if if you empower somebody, that gives them fulfillment. I think if you hold them accountable, that gives them the, the third rail to operate in. If you have visibility in the sense that you're you're portraying what needs to be done and it's not hidden, then that leads maybe some some command management for uh, peer peer approval. Uh, the collaboration is nobody does anything on their own, and if somebody takes credit for something that, that they did uh, and and not share that, I think that can be toxic. And then the last one, which I think encompasses it all, is trust. And I think you have to trust your people, and you have to hold them accountable. You have to give them the empowerment to do their job. And really, as a certain point in your life when you become a senior leader, your objective is to to remove all the roadblocks uh, that those folks have and just uh, let that unbridled uh, energy go forward. What is the U.S. Navy's information technology strategy? We will ask its CIO, Rob Foster, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Why is federal acquisition so complex? What is category management? How is the federal government driving innovation in acquisition? What is being done to strengthen government industry relationships? Join host Michael J. Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Ann Rung, Administrator, Office of Federal Procurement Policy, OFPP, Office of Management and Budget. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Rob Foster, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of the Navy. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Jimmy Norcross. So, Rob, uh, the Navy uh, views information, data, and technology as strategic assets that play a critical role in its meeting its mission. Uh, To that end, uh, would you tell us more about uh, your IT priorities, your key strategic IT priorities? Absolutely. So, as it relates to data, I think there's a lot of people, technology, and processes that touch that data. So, some of the goals out there are workforce excellence uh, across the IT domain and definitely in the cybersecurity space. I think you have to have some level of governance, and I would suggest a lightweight governance because if it's too burdensome, people will avoid it. Uh, And if it's uh, not uh, visible enough, in some cases, you won't ask the right questions at the right level. So lightweight governance is important. 
The cybersecurity piece and cybersecurity management is another objective, and that deals with both workforce as well as operations as well as visibility and policies. Uh, the information management as it relates to data, and I think that was one of your key points, is how is the data managed? Where is it stored? What is its risk? Uh, and I would say not all data is created equal. In some take cases, we actually try and treat it the same. And as we've started to look at uh, moving to the cloud, that's one of the determining factors is what is the classification of that data. So I think that's uh, going forward important. The other one I think would be technology and innovation. And so that's your delivery side. What we can't do, uh, in my mind, is hold on to the old method of delivery, whether that be uh, own it uh, and operate it or outsource it or uh, whatever those decisions have to be made. We can't uh, rely upon the fact that the government is building uh, technology when in some cases we need to be an, adopt an adopter of what um, the technology is out there and industry is already provided. So, Rob, as a follow-up, what are the key internal and external drivers and trends that shape and inform your IT strategy? So, from the internal side, I think uh, having a governance that uh, allows us to look uh, enterprise-wide is very, very critical because we have, in some cases, um, I would say, optimization that could be better utilized if you look at it from an enterprise perspective. Just one minor example an enterprise license agreement uh, would give you the resources that were otherwise utilized in a sub-optimized way. You could roll that up and then maybe plow that into something. So from an internal perspective, I think you need to know what you have. You need to know where your spend is. And I think you need to know where you're going and then somehow roll that up to optimize it. From an external perspective, I would suggest there's two areas. Number one would be the technology innovations. Uh, that's number one, and I'll break that down in a moment. And the third, the second one would be the, the workforce and their expectations. So unlike when I came on board uh, many years ago, uh, a BlackBerry was both a status symbol and, and, and exactly, yeah, it was a status symbol and in some cases, you know, just to be put on your hip, right? Um, so the folks that we're hiring today and the mission that they have to accomplish is very mobile. Their uh, desire is to be mobile and quite frankly, their first uh, form factor is mobile. And when we tether them to a desk or we tether them to a system that is not user-friendly, uh, I, I would suggest to you that, that we won't get the best and brightest. We also won't optimize their productivity. On the technology side, that's the people side. On the technology side, I think we have to be able to embrace um, some level of migration from where we are to where we're going to be. And, uh, and, and that's being done, but I think some of the resource constraints are helping us uh, or, or, or preventing us from going as fast as we could. Rob, you mentioned uh, the cloud. I'd like to, to, to uh, have a little discussion about the cloud. The Navy, like the other services and, and uh, broadly across the federal, federal government, continue to run numerous uh, legacy applications, many that are deeply rooted in um, the departmental uh, computing, and computing environment. Would you tell us about your efforts to, to migrate to the cloud? Uh, what's the Navy's approach to the cloud? Maybe some examples. Um, and, and how these migrations progress? Uh, and, and how's that going in, in your view? Sure, Jimmy. So um, I think the cloud migration, as I talked a little bit earlier, is uh, dependent upon the data uh, and, and the data 
as it relates to what is a classification. So well, there's been a lot of um, level two data that has been exposed to the cloud because it publicly facing is no problem. It's not a challenge. I think the other piece of the puzzle would be when you look at the security associated with uh, the higher levels, we have to work through the, the operational and concept of operations side. So that's one piece, and then the other piece would also be the uh, application's ability to migrate to the cloud. So there's the technical migration. So uh, what's gone on is we've done some data center consolidation, which also lets us know where the data is, how it's being hosted, uh, some cost factors. Then we segregate that out. We migrate uh, to a consolidated position uh, in a data center. Then we also look at the complexities of the application and the application owner. And then we look at where the data is, where it needs to be. And as that's being deconstructed, we're also looking at the concept of operations, in my words, uh, command and control, of when the data is hosted somewhere, how does the operator or how do the operators manage the data, have visibility of the data, and understand uh, you know, the transit uh, as aspects of the data from a security at rest, from a security and transit perspective. And if there is a, uh, a spill or a breach, how is it mitigated? And that's your incident response piece. So there's been uh, outreach with the application owners to help them learn how to migrate, and that was well received, and that's happening. Uh, there has been discussions on cloud access points as it relates to uh, the ability to get into the cloud of the vendor. And then I think we're still digging into the contract aspects of when that data is there, how is it going to be managed, and some of the aspects associated with command and control. Oh, thank you very much. So, so as a follow-up, what are some of the key benefits and challenges uh, of migrating to the cloud? And and how are you addressing those 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 challenges? And to the extent, you know, like for your thoughts on the security aspects of the cloud as well. Some some seem real, some seem more perceived. So, I'd like, I'd be interested in your thoughts there as well. So, uh, you know, the real and perceived is only in one person's mind. So, <laughs> you right. know, I've got to be careful with that. Um, I, I think this goes back to uh, some discussions again about the data. The data is absolutely critical to our mission to make decisions in a timely manner. And as you move farther up the level of security, I think the risk calculus is slightly different than if it would be lower in the data stack. So if it's publicly available, you're going to go with the lowest cost option because there's very little risk. As you go higher up into the national security information and that data is going to be hosted somewhere else. Now you have to have a prove-it scenario. And I think the challenges are how we're organized to, uh, again, do the command and control. I think that's a big deal that we have to have everybody on board with that. I think we have to have policies in place that allow that to happen. We have to have uh, the contract written in such a way that there's some cost sharing and some risk sharing. And it can't all be on one side and on all all the other. And I don't know if we're quite there yet in some of our uh, vehicles because oftentimes we try and defer that responsibility. And in the case of Departmental of Defense data, we can't defer the responsibility of ownership. We always own it. Mm -hmm. So how do you mitigate that on a cost basis 
but how do you also mitigate it on a trust and risk basis? And that, I think, is one of the challenges going forward. And so, uh, Rob, can we discuss the Navy's approach and progress to modernizing its IT infrastructure, which such things as virtualization and data center consolidation? Sure. So uh, we've definitely done some some data center consolidation, as I mentioned earlier. I think uh, if I can just break that one down for a minute. So there was a lot of definitional disparities in my word as to what a data center is. Um, and over the few years, uh, that definition has changed, which has changed your baseline of what's in and what's out. And so the Department of Defense uh, specifically in the Navy, uh, when we started doing some activities around the NMCI model, uh, we did a consolidation in 2010 when the Federal Data Center Consolidation Initiative, FDCCI, came out around 2010. So there was a lot of precursors to this data center consolidation that the Navy had already done. And when you boil it all down, you have about 381 data centers as that definition has changed a few times. But from there, if you just deduct uh, the new or not so new, the uh, special processing nodes, which was classified as a data center based on the criteria, but when you look at what it does, uh, so an example might be I have to be co-located to a medical device because of latency or I have to have it close because of um, some other functional requirement, but it still meets the criteria of a data center, that really can't be consolidated because it's tied to the function. Another one might be a simulation opportunity. So you just got to have those data centers right next to the simulators uh, for, for that function. So those special processing nodes, when you take those out of the total, you know, the Department of the Navy is down to about, you know, 188, and we've closed 71 of them. So of those 188. So you, you really, when you hear numbers, I think you need to ask, what is the definition of that number? You have to understand why is that number there? And in some cases, there's a good reason for it that might not be known to both the general public as, as well as others. So that's the data center side. Um, is there anything else that I can uh, help amplify on that? Just the virtualization, is that, is that part of it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's, it's definitely part of it. And I think we've been, we've been working on virtualization, but Again, that's back to the application mm -hmm. and how, how does that application work? How was it designed? How was it architected? And there requires some level of investment to make that application be a virtual app. You can wrap it. You can move it around. Uh, and, and I just don't know if you get as much optimization out of it. Yeah. yeah. What's the Navy's ingest strategy for the joint regional security stacks and the, and the joint management system? J JRSS and JMS. Right. So so the J Joint uh, Regional Security Stack, JRSS, the Department of the, the Navy, uh, a few years ago, prior to my arrival, uh, they have put a significant amount of money, energy, and resources in upgrading the security uh, posture. And to that point, we are where we need to be on the JRSS. As JRSS matures, We've been providing our requirements. We've been working with the department on a uh, hand-in-glove method, and we're going to be migrating to JRSS at 2.0. There, uh, at, as they enhance that capability, will be as an on-ramp moving into that. How is U.S. Navy enhancing its IT security across the enterprise? 
We will ask Navy CIO Rob Foster when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Why is federal acquisition so complex? What is category management? How is the federal government driving innovation in acquisition? What is being done to strengthen government-industry relationships? Join host Michael J. Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Ann Rung, Administrator, Office of Federal Procurement Policy, OFPP, Office of Management and Budget. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Rob Foster, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of the Navy. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Jimmy Norcross. So, Rob, we live in a very mobile world. You pointed out earlier, folks don't want to be tethered to a desk. Uh, Would you tell us more about the Navy's mobility strategy? What are you doing to leverage mobility solutions to meet the evolving mission of the department? And how and in what areas are you expanding enterprise mobile services? Sure. So, if I could break it into maybe three major <clears throat> network areas, we have an ashore network, NMCI. We have an afloat network, which would be IT21, which encompasses canes on ships. And then we have an overseas, which is a one net. So there's been a lot of work in that area to enhance the infrastructure, uh, which will be helpful as you start rolling out the technical devices, in this case, the smartphone uh, technology and, and pad and tablets. So that's going uh, as planned. It could be accelerated a, a little bit more, but there is a uh, an insatiable appetite, again, from both uh, those that are coming into the organization and those that are finding it an opportunity to enhance their productivity. And uh, just some examples that are out there. There's an electronic flat flight bag that uh, NAVAIR is rolling with. The Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy is pushing very hard and has been rolling out what's called eSailor. And that's a tablet that's used at our, our Recruit Training Command in Great Lakes. So we, we've got a, a lot of innovation going on. There is opportunities for improvement. And I think one of the challenges that we have is what is the resources associated in this case might be a cost model. What is the risk associated, which might be a policy and operational model. And then lastly, what would be the productivity enhancements associated with mobility. Uh, we're going to get there. I think everybody's uh, energized around doing it, but I think there's some stakeholders that are still working through some of those details. I'd like to shift the conversation a little bit to cybersecurity, which is obviously a, a very important and uh, important topic. Given the in- evolving nature of the cyber threat and adversaries, constant targeting of, of government net- networks, could you elaborate on your efforts to enhance IT security across the enterprise? Um, what are you doing to automate uh, and continually monitor uh, the systems? What progress have you made? Uh, and what challenges do you do you still face? Sure. So, again, from my role as a uh, the CIO for, for policy in there, cyber policy there, we have an operational component in the uh, Department of the Navy Fleet Cyber Command. And they work through U.S. Cyber, and they have the operational uh, defend role. 
and they've in, enhanced quite a bit of the security monitoring capabilities. Uh, they're well positioned to defend the network. And so from an operational perspective, that is uh, well at hand and, and being more uh, robust each day. From a not necessarily a policy, but maybe a, a change in approach as it relates to applications and the uh, authority to operate and the accreditation, if you will, the risk management framework is is coming to fruition uh, in the Department of the Navy and Department of Defense. And essentially, that's going to allow us, I think, a little bit more real-time uh, assessment of cyber. And so instead of being a uh, an authority to operate, which normally was a three-year process, and my words fire and forget, uh, we're moving to a more continuous diagnostics and mitigation, both from a network perspective, an application perspective, a process perspective. And that's going to uh, realign resources, priorities, and energies around not necessarily real-time, but a lot more real-time than authority to operate used to be. And that's, that's, a, that's a change for both the users, for the program managers, as, as well as some of the other folks in that process. But at the end of the day, I think you're going to have a, uh, a faster turnaround time to resolve and mitigate things uh, when they do uh, come up. So that's another area that's being worked. Thank you. And that, and that all is largely contingent upon the, the cyber workforce. Absolutely. Right? So, so the development of that workforce, the cyber workforce personnel across all cyber missions continues to be a major effort within DOD and the Department of the Navy and, and in, in the commercial market as well. How are you as the Department of Navy CIO working with DOD and the Navy and the Marine Corps to, to support this effort? And, and do you have any recommendations to improve cybersecurity training for Department of Navy systems? Sure. So um, my office has been working uh, with the Navy Marine Corps members of the Cybersecurity and uh, Cyberspace Workforce Management Oversight Compliance Council. So that's a, a MOCC. <laughs> um, exactly. <laughs> and so, so that's been going on quite some time. And we've been working to try and figure out the training uh, manuals, the training approach to cybersecurity professionals. There's been a lot of effort in that uh, group. And we've released a, a, a policy memo out where we're essentially if you were to break it down, we're looking at the workforce and we're trying to assign um, capabilities mapping back to their training. And their training doesn't have to be specific in nature that says if you just take this one class, you're certified. So you've got uh, your degree programs, you've got your on-the-job training, you've got your military training. All of those things to include a demonstrated skill set will allow you to be reclassified uh, into a cybersecurity uh, role. And those roles, I think, if you look at the NICE framework, which is what we've used, uh, that's the National uh, Initiative for Cybersecurity, and that's a federal um, program. We've worked with other departments, uh, Department of Homeland Security and others, to get this policy out. The Department of the Navy released it. That's going to help match the workforce that's internal and categorize them so that they can be aligned with the demand internal. One of the challenges with workforce is, of course, hiring people. Recruit, retain, and reward is very difficult in cybersecurity. It's a very lucrative business. And so uh, our objective is to match talent with requirements. The thing about cybersecurity, unlike, I think, other domains, and we do have a cybersecurity domain, we also call it a warfare domain. So the issue with a warfare domain, I think it's pretty easily identified who is a combatant and who is not. 
But when you go down the cybersecurity path, anybody with a keyboard mm. can dispatch a payload that can be detonated, that can cause damage across your entire network. So what does that mean? That means everybody in the workforce is a warrior. And with that, I think you need to step back and ask yourself, how are they trained? So the training of the cybersecurity defense group, they're very, very good at what they do. But that could be overrun by one phishing attack by one person with one keyboard that could cause them to be distracted from defense to chase down something that has now moved laterally. So the cybersecurity education, I think, has gone a long way in helping individuals come to work with a different attitude. And, and I mean, it's happening to yourself at home. You're, you're getting identity theft uh, attacks. Your family has got uh, things that have happened to them. Cyber is everywhere. So you're now bringing that home. My objective would be to train and continue to train the workforce to take what they've learned at work and then share it at home. Because I think if you click on the wrong uh, web link or you go to the wrong uh, uh, ID, that can has, have problems. If you upload software or if you connect yourself to something, hardware, firmware, software, and you download it onto your computer from an unauthorized area, those are the kind of things that I think heretofore maybe a lot of people didn't think about but they're doing it a lot more, they're thinking about it a lot more, and they're becoming more cautious. That is a good thing for our cyber workforce. Interestingly enough, you, know, you, you need to focus on the risk, but you also need to focus on innovation. I'm wondering, what are you doing to spur innovation across the enterprise? Um, how do you develop or are you in development of mobile apps, uh, and do they factor into your efforts? And what else needs to be done in this area? Sure. So, so the mobile apps, um, we have quite a few different innovation cells across the department and um, at, at all levels. And I think there's no uh, limit on, on innovation. I think, to your point, they have to be innovated uh, in, in some level of a, a risk-free zone. So having sandboxes to operate in to, to test, they should have some level of standards as it relates to the security standards, and they should have some level of a testing. I would love to see automated testing such that you, you, you roll from a development uh, environment into a pre-development testing environment, and after that test comes out through an automation, uh, you could possibly roll right into, or into production. That would be ideal. We do have lots of organizations, and again, they're developing applications. We have a, a C Warrior. Uh, if you go to Apple iStore and you Google Sea Warrior, you'll see quite a few applications that are being put out there. Our organization, uh, PEOEIS, Program Executive uh, Group, uh, they put out uh, two of my apps most recently for training on PII and records management from my office, and we collaborated with them. So now you can train where you don't, again, you're not tethered to your desktop. So there's a lot of innovation. I think we need to make sure that we're providing the tools, we're providing the policies, uh, and we're making some risk-based decisions on getting them into production. Mm-hmm. So the modern-day CIO, you, you have to talk about cyber. You have to. You really have to talk about innovation. The other thing that is uh, on your plate now is the use of uh, data analytics. Um, how are you expanding the use of this tool to drive decision making across the enterprise? How are you uh, using advanced analytics to improve fleet operations? And what are some of the challenges in this area? So I think this this goes back to again the, the warfighter domain as it relates to the fleet. To your point. 
they're very good at doing warfighter analytics, and that's operational analysis type discussions. That's collecting from sensors and ISR uh, type input. So your in- intelligence, uh, surveillance, reconnaissance, that is done magnificently. I think where we've got areas of improvement would be, in my words, the business applications. So uh, there is a lot of data that that moves around in business systems. How it's rolled up and those decisions that are being made, I think, is an area that we could improve upon. And that's one of uh, the areas I need to try and focus on is, is using that data to have some level of enterprise view and therefore some enterprise decisions. We do have them functionally aligned and we do have those kind of decisions being made. But if I were to look across the department, I think that's an area that we could improve upon. What does the future hold for information technology within the U.S. Department of the Navy? We will ask its CIO, Rob Foster, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Why is federal acquisition so complex? What is category management? How is the federal government driving innovation in acquisition? What is being done to strengthen government industry relationships? Join host Michael J. Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Ann Rung, Administrator, Office of Federal Procurement Policy, OFPP, Office of Management and Budget. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Rob Foster, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of the Navy. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Jimmy Norcross. Rob, I talk to many of my guests about the use of collaboration and partnerships among agencies and with the private sector to achieve mission results. Uh, Would you tell us how you're leveraging partnerships to improve operations and outcome, and to what extent can collaboration and partnerships drive innovation? Outstanding. So one of the books I referenced previously was Collaboration. Uh, My experience uh, across three uh, departments, in this case, Homeland Security, Health and Human Services, and then the Department of Defense, is I've never met anybody unwilling on a federal government side to share with you. So I think one of our, our challenges would be Do we have a robust network as executives? I think that's important. And I think that network should be diverse. It should not be uh, monolithic. So uh, that would be a a question. I think the other thing that's out there is I've also done a lot of industry outreach. And that's another one I think that's very important. 
uh, whether that's at Homeland Security, Health and Human Services, or now at Department of Defense. I've never met one large organization, and I'm talking Fortune 50, company that won't open their doors, sit down with you and explain how they've done their cybersecurity in many instances and how they've organized and constructed their methodology for application de- deployment because we're, we're a non-threat. We are not a competitor. And so, so I think there's another opportunity because if a Fortune 50 company is willing and operating the way that we would like to be, there's a lot of things we could learn from that in the IT space. So just you know, a couple of examples there that I think we could look on. I've used a FOIA online, which we've uh, designated as the Department of Navy uh, tool that came from the EPA. Multiple departments are using that now uh, for, again, Freedom of Information Act, FOIA online. So that's a big deal. Uh, I've reached out to to NASA on some mobility. I've worked uh, with DHS on cybersecurity workforce and some of the things that they've developed. So once you connect your team, it's amazing how much information gets shared. I just think that there's, in my words and back into the collaboration book, there's a potential discussion of what's called a starved network. And, and I think executives' job is to connect the dots, open them, and expose that network. And then, again, as I said, empower your people to, to, and trust them to go out and, and work together. Information technology obviously plays a, a critical role in, in the mission and, and program uh, delivery. In your view, how has the role of the CIO evolved into one of a trusted advisor? And what are the characteristics of a successful CIO from from your experience? Sure. So um, I think from a CIO perspective, and again, just having the visibility across law enforcement, healthcare, and Department of Defense, I think a couple of things are critical. One, you have to have your technical expertise. I got that. That you need that. But if you're talking to a mission owner in technical speak, you've completely lost them. So the most important aspect is to know their business. Know, in my opinion, maybe their sticking points or hurdles that you have to help them overcome. And then not bog them down with any of the technical discussions. Take that out of the room and just keep going back and talking mission opportunity, talking in mission terms. And, and that's, I think, a key ingredient. Um, so that's understanding the business and understanding, you know, how that business works in the government is critical. Technical understanding of, you know, solution delivery, I think that's important. And then if you look at the ECQs, this is kind of, uh, it's not a, a plug for the ECQs, but, you know, you do have to have some experience in leading change because nothing's easy. You have to understand the business, as I talked about. Leading people, you can't get there by yourself. We've discussed that. You have to have some level of doing results and delivering those results because nobody's paying you to just talk about it. And the last one, I think, and this is very important, is that building of coalition. So if you have a partner that trusts you, then you have a seat at the table. And then you're going to be brought to, to, to bear as a value proposition, not as a cost center. And I think that's critical. And then you have to look back in the CIO's position and say, how do I achieve success? I think you need to have an acquisition professional that's your partner. You've got to have a finance and a CFO that's your partner. The CXO suite has to be aligned to support the business because if anything's out of alignment, the mission will be less served. So, uh, Rob, turning to the future, what do you hope to or want to achieve in the next, say, year or so? And how do you identify promising trends and developments? 
Absolutely. So um, as it relates to workforce, I think workforce excellence is a key issue. We've talked about, you know, people, process, and technology. I agree Mm -hmm. that technology is an industry issue, uh, and we can leverage a lot of that. But the people is predominantly ours, and we need to work on that. So uh, I think workforce excellence is a big deal. Recruit, retrain, and reward, that's one. I think uh, lightweight governance is critical. I, I don't like overburdensome governance, and I don't like multiple layers of governance. But I think you have to have governance at some level for visibility and to ask the right questions. Again, cybersecurity management, I think that's a big deal, and we need to have the right policies and doctrine in place. Uh, maybe remove some that are there that are maybe not as, as uh, uh, beneficial to the current uh, process. Information management, I think that's a big deal, and and we have to have information sharing under that umbrella. We have to know where the data is, how the data is moved, and then what we can do with that data when it is exposed. And then technology innovation, which we talked a little bit about with mobility, I think that's critical. I think there's a lot more uh, innovation out there that once you – it's kind of a geometric uh, discussion as opposed to a linear. And, and, and if I go logarithmic and I say, I don't know what tomorrow brings, but if I take that first step, is it going to go vertical on me? And I think the answer is yes. With Internet of Things and you look around, um, all we need to do is get this domino to start falling, and I think it's going to take care of itself with innovation. But we can't let it go, again, outside the security realm. We've got to have the process such that it works very rapidly with a low security threat. So, Rob, uh, would you tell us about um, the Federal Information Technology Acquisition Reform Act, FITARA? Uh, how is the Navy uh, working in that direction to the requirements, and what are some of the challenges you're facing? Sure. So, I, I think if you break FITARA down uh, into its components, there's some things in there that were already uh, declared. So, for instance, federal data center consolidation is under FITARA, but we've already talked about that being work for many years. Uh, If you really, I think, get to to where the rubber meets the road is there's one area that I think is is somewhat of a change, and that's the CIO authorities line. And the CIO authorities line, uh, if you deconstruct it, it says things along the lines of all acquisitions that are IT acquisitions will be approved by the chief information officer. So the question is, is what is all, what's your threshold, and what's your volume and capacity to do that in an accurate manner? So that's something that needs to be worked through. The other one would be uh, the budget has to be, uh, you know, reviewed and approved by the CIO. So, again, what does that mean, and, and what does that change in the CFO lane? Previously, what does that change in the procurement process, time-to-market type discussions? I think the third component of the stool would be uh, – of the, the leg of the stool would be the CIO is, you know, the the hiring authority for all CIOs throughout that organization. So um, that would be, you know, treading in potentially into the chief human capital officer's area. So it all makes a lot of sense. It all has good business to it. The question is, is – if you have your CXOs aligned, as I discussed earlier, to support the mission, I think you have a higher chance of, of uh, getting a better outcome with Vitara. And uh, there's not that they aren't aligned. I just think that they've operated in their own areas, mm-hmm. and the dependencies have been more along the lines of um, transactional potentially and maybe some level of a process. But if you put them all under that, that Vitara umbrella, there's uh, areas for – uh, process reengineering potentially. 
Great. I found it interesting throughout your conversation that you've worked in the federal civilian arm in the CIO shop. So uh, where I'm going is what's the differences and complementarities between being in the federal civilian CIO shop and leading one in the uh, armed forces? So I would suggest there's a lot of difference between law enforcement, health care, and Department of Defense. So even within the civilian side of the house, there are significant differences, right? And, and I think, you know, culture, everybody throws that out there, but it is a, a significant thing you have to understand because when you're talking terms of mission, um, a scientist and a physician has a different view and a different perspective than does a senior investigative agent that does or does not have the same as possibly a general in the field. Um, so I think the first piece of understanding is what is the mission, what is the culture of those that operate in that mission, and how do you map back to supporting that mission? Um, because cultural boundaries, it's not that you want to challenge them, you want to understand them. And I think that's an important aspect. The other piece, I think, is potentially, and I don't know if op-tempo is the right word, but I think there is an uh, expectation of time uh, and, and urgency. So when you're in a uh, maybe a, an operational aspect and then you're in a research aspect, I would suggest to you you have a different time frame. And then I think the data would be another discussion point. So an example might be, a researcher wants to share their information because they're maybe potentially interested in not sharing it outside because they want to get credit for what they've done, but they want to get input from their research uh, cadre. A law enforcement may or may not want to share that information, and Department of Defense may or may not want to share that information. So back to the earlier discussion, I think you, you have to understand the culture, you have to understand the mission, you have to understand what they're using that data for, and then discuss in the stratifications of the layers of security of data how that data can be um, exposed or not, how it can be shared or not, and then lastly, if exposed, how can it be aggregated to a negative effect? So it may seem like this information is all fine and dandy and it's got, you know, an unclass. But after about four or five or ten different unclass uh, uh, activities, can I now draw a picture of something that could be used by the adversary to possibly target my forces, target my officers, or maybe you know change some some discussions in the healthcare? So, I think data is a key element here. Culture is a key element. Operational tempo is a key element. Those are the kind of um, visibilities that I've seen going uh, from, from department to department. That's a terrific perspective. So uh, what advice would you give someone who is uh, considering a career in public service? Outstanding. I love this question. <laughs> I, uh, I, I really think that this is something to the, to the heart of service. And, um, you know, just in my own uh, ideas, the reason I went from uniform to civil servant is because I did want to lead, shape, and manage. And I would suggest to you... In the federal government, everybody is a leader. And, and I think as we get, become more technology uh, savvy, I think we're going to be a flatter organization. Some people might not think so, but I think that data is going to spur innovation. But I think if I were to give kind of a, a primer, the first thing I'd say is you know, to take the individual and map their passion, whatever drives them in the morning to get up to the department 
a federal agency that has that mission. So what is my passion? If my passion is healthcare, then I would look at Department of Health and Human Services. So, uh, so I think that would be something to think about is mapping your passion to the department. Then I'd, quite frankly, you know, the next step would be conduct informational interviews. And I've never met a federal employee that doesn't love to tell you about their job. So you set up your informational interviews with that agency that drives your passions. Then I'd read all the open sources I could. Those are speeches that are out there from the director. Those are the websites associated and get a feel for what exactly the organization does. If you're going to go into the federal government, you have to use USA Jobs. That's one of the key uh, portals to get in there. So I'd go to USA Jobs. I'd set up an account. I'd go ahead and build my resume. I'd uh, put in whatever documents are necessary that uh, USA Jobs requires. I definitely would set up what's called an intelligent agent. The intelligent agent on USA Jobs can search location, jobs, direct uh, department things like that. And you can have those sent to you weekly, daily. Uh, and now you've got a picture of what's happening. And then, you know, lastly, if all of those things align, I'd be applying. And I think that would be my roadmap to somebody that wants to be in the federal government. It's a wonderful career. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, the the same job. Uh, I, as you see, I've, I've done three departments in 10 years. So you can move around. But I think what happens is, a lot of people might not be interested in the federal government as a because the hurdles, the barriers to entry are somewhat challenging. But if you follow what I just described, I think it, it, it'll set you up for success. That is, that, that is probably the best uh, practical uh, advice I've heard since uh, I've asked this question, to be honest. I mean, that's a wonderful uh, roadmap to how to actually use some of these, uh, some of these resources. Yeah, well, I, I love what I do, and I think the, everyone around me loves their job, and it's a great mission. And, and I find uh, passion everywhere I go. I think you want to direct that passion towards uh, mission delivery. Uh, Rob, that's terrific advice. I, I want to thank you for joining us today. But more importantly, Jimmy and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Well, thank you very much. I greatly appreciate it, gentlemen. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Rob Foster, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of the Navy. My co-host from IBM has been Jimmy Norcross. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. Why is federal acquisition so complex? What is category management? How is the federal government driving innovation in acquisition? What is being done to strengthen government industry relationships? Join host Michael J. Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Ann Rung, Administrator, Office of Federal Procurement Policy, OFPP, Office of Management and Budget. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. The 16th annual March of Dimes Heroines of Washington Gala will honor women who exemplify leadership and are making a difference in our community. From CEOs to rising stars, this year's finalists will be recognized for their significant volunteer contributions at a Black Tie Awards presentation on Tuesday, November 15th at the Ritz-Carlton Tyson's Corner. All proceeds from Heroines of Washington will benefit the March of Dimes mission to give every baby a fighting chance. 
Since 2001, the event has given awards to 93 heroines and has raised more than $2.4 million to support the March of Dimes' effort to help women have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. To learn more about the March of Dimes, purchase tickets to Heroines of Washington or make a donation. Visit marchofdimes.org heroines. Join March of Dimes in celebrating these inspiring women who go above and beyond to improve our community.